Would you join me, Acts chapter number 9, as we continue going through this uh, really great book of uh, the birth and growth and expansion of the early church. Um, we're in that process where the church uh, had flourished in the city of Jerusalem. Hey guys, listen real quick. How important is something if the Bible repeats it, right? If the Bible says something and then it tells it again, that means it's a very important thing. Obviously, the death of Christ was so important. We have four books that talk about his birth and his death and his resurrection. Those are the Gospels. But what we looked at last week was so important in the whole scheme of things that, with the, let this sink in, within the same book, within the book of Acts, chapters 9, chapter 22, and chapter 26 all cover this event that we looked at last week, which was the conversion of Saul of Tarsus to Christ. It was so important. So if you were not able to hear last week's message, again, it, would, it might be one of those that would be very important to go back and listen to. And so today we're going to pick up from his conversion and move forward in that. So the church had flourished, but then persecution came. A man named Stephen was killed, and persecution was spearheaded by a man named Saul of Tarsus. I mean, this man was super zealous, very talented. A Pharisee, but he hated Jesus and he hated Christians so much that he wasn't satisfied with running Christians, thousands of them out of Jerusalem. He goes to the high priest and he gets letters of authority to get, start going to other cities. And he goes all the way to the city of Damascus with the intention of arresting Christians 150 miles away in Damascus, bringing them back in chains and shackles. And they're going to stand trial and be persecuted and tormented, tortured to blaspheme and ultimately be put to death. This is what he wants. This man just hates Christians. What we noticed last week is right before he got to the city of Damascus, a light. So here we're doing a quick review. A light shined from heaven around him. And again, not all in chapter 9. You have to take chapter 22, 26, and 9. Put all that together. And here's what we learn. This light appeared to him and these men that are with him in the middle of the day. I mean, in the middle of the day. Not even where we're at yet. Later on in this day, the light is so bright that it was brighter than the daylight. I mean, we think of a light, we think of nighttime. No, it's not that. Brighter, in fact, not just brighter than daylight, brighter than the sun, Paul later will say. Brighter than the sun itself. So bright, it ends up blinding him. Extremely. Knocks them all to the ground. But the key is, what was this light? So the light, we know, was actually Jesus. In fact, as he goes to the ground, the Lord Jesus tells this man, Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? And remember this. This is different than today. We're reviewing last week. Saul says, who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? Obviously, you're the Lord. Nothing's out here. You're speaking to me. You're so bright. You just knocked me to the ground. Who are you? And this person says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And I don't know how long of a gap is between verse 5 and verse 6 of last week. But this just changed everything in this man's life. The Christians, his followers, have been telling the truth. He really is the Lord. This man that was dead is now alive. He is the Christ, the Messiah. Everything that I thought about him is all wrong. And so he has to totally revamp his theology. Just before we read this week's text, we noticed last week, among several other things, that his conversion proves that salvation is always a matter of sovereign grace. So this is the last part of the review. Salvation is always, it's always a matter of sovereign grace. So I brought up the question, did the men that were with him, did they get saved? Because they saw 
a different thing. They saw a light. He saw Christ. He ends up blinded. They do not end up blinded. They don't see the full version of what he sees. They hear a noise, but they don't hear the conversation directly with Saul. Jesus is talking to Saul. They hear a noise, but not words. He hears specific words. So could it be? I don't know the answer. Did he get saved and they didn't? I don't know. But I know this. That is possible. Because salvation is always a matter of grace. Grace means it's a free gift. Salvation is when God gives you something you do not deserve. You do not deserve this. None of these people deserved it. And so, no, no, no. God has to save all of it. No, he doesn't. We made a statement last week. If God, because it's grace, doesn't have to save anyone, he certainly doesn't have to save everyone. And so he singles out this man that hates him. It's not because Saul's a good man. Hey, that's the best of them. I think I'll save the best. No, actually, he saved the worst of them. And it proves that salvation is always a matter of sovereign grace. God made a decision to save this man. So with that as our backdrop, we last saw that he gets up from the ground He asked the Lord, what shall I do? The Lord says, go into the city and it will be told to you what you are to do next. So he goes into the city and we know that for three days he's not eating or drinking. I'm assuming he's even maybe sleeping some, but we're getting ready to find out what he's mainly doing. And apparently he's just by himself for the most part. And then this happens. Verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. So this is the city where Saul, and I'll call him Paul and Saul interchangeably, It's the same man. So there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. So you let that sink in. Here's this vision, this man, this Christian, this followers of, of Christ that's in this city that's heard about the persecution that's coming by Saul. Here, Ananias minding his own business. The Lord shows up to him in a vision, calls out his name. And he said, here I am, Lord. You already noticed the difference. Previous verses, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you? This time, Ananias. Here I am, Lord. Here I am, Lord. It's very different. And the Lord said to him, to Ananias, rise, go to the street called Straight. You could literally go on your computer, punch in pictures of Straight Street in Damascus. There is still, it's the main east-west street that went back. It's one of the first streets, apparently, in the ancient world that had two-way traffic and lights and all of these things. This was a tremendous city, uh, and this was the main road. So here's the Lord's command to Ananias. The Lord said to him, rise, okay, got it, go to the street called Straight, okay, at the house of Judas. We're going to assume that's a hotel or a motel, something where they're staying, got it. Rise, go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus. Man of Tarsus, 250 miles away. Somebody from there is over here. Man of Tarsus. Okay, got it? Rise, go to the street called Straight. At the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. Man of Tarsus. And right about there, guarantee you, Ananias is already getting his words formed in his head. The Lord says... At the house of Judas, look for a man named Saul, a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. Ananias, while I'm talking to you in a real way, I'm hearing from this man in the other part of town. He's praying, and I'm dealing with him, and I'm I'm dealing with you in the same time. Verse 12. And he has seen in a vision, hey, Ananias, you're in a vision. Your vision is about his vision. 
He has seen in a vision a man named Ananias. Tink, tink, tink. That's you, okay? I'm talking to you. He's praying. He's already seen a vision of a man named Ananias. That is you. Here's what's going to happen. He's seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. So now he's already picturing, he's getting information. The Saul of Tarsus is over at Straight Street. He's in the house of Judas. And apparently he's lost his sight. And I'm supposed to go over there and lay my hands on him. So he regains his sight. But Ananias answered. But Ananias answered. Lord, I have heard from many about this man. Heard from many about this man. We know about him. How much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here... He has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Ananias, here I am, Lord. I need you to go over there and do this and that. Get with him and you're going to do that. Because he's praying and he's got this vision. Lord, wait a minute. I've heard from a lot of people about this man. Apparently you don't understand some things. <laughs> he's got authority. You come here. He has bad intentions, bad man. He hates us. Verse 15. But the Lord said to him, Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. A threefold, meaning like particularly the Gentiles and the children of Israel. And he's even going to speak before kings. How many people are going to do that? Not many. And then verse 16, and a, a, a strange thing, the Lord tells Ananias, For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. It's not that, hey, Saul, you're going to pay for your sins. All that persecution, you're going to pay for all that. It's not that. God has other plans. He has other reasons why he allows these things. It's not punishment. Christ took the punishment for Saul's sins. I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Not just a hard life. Not just like difficult life and sorrows and struggles and, you know, Sickness and those things. No, no, no. Specifically suffering related to the name of Christ. This man's going to have a difficult life because of his association with Jesus. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him. Laying his hands on him. And what a welcome feeling that would have been to Saul. He said, brother. Brother. Saul. The Lord. Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Can I kind of read between the lines? Uh, sir, there's a gentleman here to see you. Let him come on in. Saul, brother, Saul. My name is, I know who you are. I've been waiting on you. Brother, Saul, God. The Lord Jesus, this is one who's been talking to you. The one you saw on the road has sent me to help you regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. Puts his hands on him, says these words. Something clears out of the way. And he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. Saul got baptized apparently by Ananias, we're assuming. And in taking food, he was strengthened. God cares about it. I'm not going to preach on that verse so much today. God knows that we have practical needs. And he hasn't eaten in three days. He hasn't even drunk anything in three days. So he needs to have sustenance. And notice the last little part. Really, we won't hit it. But a moment today. For some days. So after he gets baptized and he eats the food and he gets strengthened. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. 
And that's why we'll we don't pick up the next time. Would you notice four things with us today? Four things, not the usual number, but today four things. Number one, out of verses 10 through 12. That's just real simple. Simple things. Christ commands Ananias. Christ commands Ananias. Back to verse number 10. Now there was a disciple named at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. Hey, I want to ask you all real quick. What does that sound like? I'm getting ready to kind of say this phrase, this answer, here I am, Lord. Boom. Ananias. Here I am, Lord. What is that conveying to us? To me, I may be off track, but it seems to convey two things. Number one, there's a familiarity. He's familiar. Saul is like, who are you, Lord? Ananias says, here I am, Lord. And the other thing, it seems to me, and again, I've read this 31 times now this week. It seems to convey availability. Availability. Here I am, Lord. Here I am. Oh, Lord, it's you. There's a familiarity that is already there, and there's an availability. And we'll be really playing off of that idea of the availability that is relayed and conveyed in his comment. Here I am, Lord. Kind of a strange passage this morning. It's not like a lot of doctrine, obviously, is given in this. It's narrative. Um, I hope I don't cheat too much. I normally don't do this. Um, normally very much on the teaching side. I hope I don't just like overdo it on like making a correlation between him and us. But there are a lot of things that I'm noticing. The negative and the positive that should come from us and Saul and Ananias in today's passage. And here's the first one. I like this. Can I stand here and tell you guys that the Lord Jesus had spoken to him audibly before this point? No. In fact, I would get the impression he had never heard the Lord audibly. But this is striking to me. This man has such a tight relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ that when he does choose to speak audibly to him, he recognizes who it is. Feel that. I ask myself, Jeff, do you have a relationship with the Lord? I, I don't think, I might have, I'm not guaranteeing, I don't think I remember anyone ever saying, hey, the Lord spoke to me audibly one time. I wouldn't expect you to hear that. I'm not saying it can't happen, though. I just say I wouldn't expect it. You don't hear it very often. But I wonder, is my relationship with God such that if he were to speak to me audibly, I would immediately know, that's what you sound like. Are we there? And I know that some people may hear that and go, what in the world are you talking about? That is the most ridiculous thing. I really believe that we should have such a close union and regular fellowship with God that we would know what he sounds like. So I'm asking you this morning, do you know what God sounds like when he talks to you? About three or four weeks ago, back when we were at, back in chapter 8, we learned a very important principle. The most reliable way to discern God's voice in your life is to hear it often in the Bible. Hear it often in the Bible. Just be in the Word of God privately. Don't just let this be your big meal for the week. Let this be like something we just do corporately, but really you're like, my real food, spiritual food through the week is my private time with God. That's where you're going to learn to hear what God sounds like, but it's not the only thing because a person who does that, now we know, I know what God sounds like, and then that person is going to start hearing the Holy Spirit speak to them, and they should recognize that's you prompting me. That's you there, and this is you here. This is the most reliable but I also know what you sound like there, and that is also reliable. Does that describe your life? Or you're this morning like, these people are weird. That should be normal. That should be normal. 
But now look, if you would, verse number 11. Having in essence said, I recognize who you are. I'm available. I'm ready. I find a similar dynamic in verses 11 and 12 that, honestly, I'm not going to repeat preach chapter 8. But if you were here, do y'all remember when we looked at Philip? It was back in verse 26. I find the same dynamic is happening here today. And I'm going to, I rarely ever do this, but I'm going to have you write a, a note, almost like you wrote it a couple of weeks ago. A few weeks ago, here's what we found. There's this evangelist named Philip. He's ministering in Samaria. God is using him so powerfully. There is a great spiritual awakening. People are getting saved, and God's using him as the primary instrument. And then out of the blue, the Lord tells, through an angel, the Lord tells Philip, leave this great revival, this great work of God, leave that and go down to a deserted place to ultimately witness and give the gospel to one man. And we hear that logically and we say, I don't think God would move someone from a great spiritual awakening down to go talk to one guy, but actually he did. And what we learned is something I want to come back to today because I think the principles now overlap. Here's Ananias minding his own business. God tells him, go over to the street called Straight, go to Judas' house, find Saul of Tarsus, and you're supposed to do this for him. That sounds wacko. So I want you to write it down. If you take notes, as in chapter 8, there's a principle in verses 11 and 12 that we, as a Christian, must never do this. Don't dismiss the message of God just because it sounds unnatural or just because it sounds uncomfortable. Philip's command to leave the revival and to go to witness a single person, that just doesn't sound logical. Don't dismiss it when it sounds illogical, unnatural, uncomfortable, or even in this case with Ananias, risky and dangerous. Don't just blow it off. So don't just assume, man, I read the Bible and I hear the principles of the Word of God, but sometimes I get these promptings of the Holy Spirit inside Things that I wouldn't do myself and that would further the kingdom of God. But I'm going to dismiss them because it's risky and it's dangerous and that can't be God. Nope, don't do that. God may very well call you. God will call you to do things that are uncomfortable. God will call you to do things that are illogical. And he will call you to do things that are risky. Never dismiss them for those reasons. Before we hit our second thought this morning, I want to quickly hit one thing in verse 11. Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. Hey guys, listen. Saul of Tarsus had said many, many prayers. He was a good Pharisee. He knew how to pray long, fancy, impressive prayers. He's no doubt one of the best. But now, when God says a person is praying, you mark it down there, you're praying. Apparently, this man has been praying for three days. Paul is going to write to the Thessalonians, pray without ceasing. Prayer is a dominant part of his life, and it starts right. I mean, this man is really praying. But here's what I'm impressed upon you. He's alone. I'm sure his men that came with him from Jerusalem to arrest Christians are trying to check on him. Are, are you still okay? I'm fine. And he's wrestling in there, and he's going over everything, and he's no doubt like trying to grapple with the ramifications that Jesus is alive, and he's struggling. He's probably confused. He's weak. He's physically weak. What do you do when you get in those situations? You pray. Listen, when you don't know what else to do, I want to encourage you. There's somebody here today. You're like, man, I barely made it this morning. I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm weak spiritually. I feel like I'm alone. I'm confused. I really pray. 
God hears his children. And while Saul of Tarsus is praying, God is over here getting the answer to his prayer together. God might very well be getting ready to answer your request. He may be working in somebody's heart. And you're about to quit praying. Don't quit. When you don't know what else to do, pray. Pray. God hears his people. Would you write this thought? Charles Spurgeon wrote that prayer is the autograph of the Holy Spirit upon the renewed heart. What does that even mean? That sounds nice. Yeah, I've heard of that guy. He was really smart a couple hundred years ago. What in the world does that even mean? Prayer is the autograph of the Holy Spirit upon the renewed heart. What does an autograph do? Why do you want someone's autograph? Well, it's kind of proof that you and they work together. Prayer is the autograph of the Holy Spirit that like, hey, I've been here. I am here. Do y'all remember? They don't even do it anymore. Uh, you remember when years ago you'd go to Carolyn's or Six Flags and you'd be on a ride and in line and you'd see the roof of something and see like a, I remember this. I think I do. Big old gobs of chewing gum and bubble gum. Y'all remember that nastiness? That teenagers would do. Sorry, teenagers. Y'all are nasty. I'm sorry. Not y'all. Those other teenagers back in the 80s. They were really nasty. But you also remember how for some reason they must bring in a magic marker in the park and they would write them, so-and-so was here. Jeff Bartlett was here. They wanted to leave their autograph. I'm here. I've been here. I was in the school uh, for many years. And kids would get yearbooks. And finally we figured out they're going to do it. Let's just start giving them two hours to sign each other's yearbook because otherwise they're going to be passing them during class. Like, put them away. You get to do that at 1 o'clock. What are they doing? Autograph. And you sign. We've been together. Is prayer part of your life? Because prayer is the autograph. I think Spurgeon's right. Prayer is the autograph of a redeemed heart where the Holy Spirit says, I live here. I am here. That's my mark. Saul is a born-again man. Number two. Would you notice not only did Christ command Ananias, but here's where the correlation comes in, and I'm not blasting the man, please understand, I'm not blasting him, I understand, but Ananias debates with Christ, Ananias debates with Christ, I want you to get up and go to the street called Straight, go to Judas's house, find the man Saul of Tarsus, and go to him, for behold, he's praying, and Ananias starts giving a rebuttal to the Lord. Would you look at verse 13? But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call upon your name. Go back to what the first, first note we had earlier. Hear these words again. Ananias, here I am, Lord. What does that convey? That seems to be conveying a surrenderedness. Have you ever been here? The Lord, you feel, impresses something upon your life. He's dealing with you. And you honestly, in your heart, you think, here I am, Lord. I'm surrendered. This is what Ananias is. I'm surrendered. I'm available. I'm ready to obey. I, am, I have a readiness to obey everything that you tell me to do. But the problem is, when the Lord actually gives the specifics of his will, Ananias starts objecting. You ever been there? I've been there. He hears the will of God. We have that note up, I think. Um, he hears the will of God, and his immediate response is to start objecting to the specifics. And I want to say something as you're writing that, and I'm not saying this to be mean. I just I want us to check our hearts, because I think there's a dynamic that has probably happened many, many times uh, throughout the last 2,000 years with Christians. Maybe it's happened with you. 
I think sometimes Christians can maybe get a point. They read their Bible and they're actually having a private time with the Lord. And it's just like, it's going so great. I mean, God is really, I mean, just like for days, like, man, the text is coming alive and God is speaking to them and prayer time is real and it is intimate. It's like powerful. And then around that time, the Lord starts using teachers and preachers and podcasts and even live and in person down at the church and something that they're reading. And all of a sudden, it's just like they are being moved toward a place of literally like being surrendered in their life. Like, God, I'm surrendering my life. And they literally hit this point. God, do you want me to go to the mission field? I will go to the mission field. Lord, is that what you want? And maybe that's what's being preached on at church. And in their mind, man, I am ready. I am surrendered to your will. And then the Lord says, that is great. Go tell that person about Jesus. And they refuse. Hey, I want you to disciple that person over there. Oh, no, I ain't doing that. I'll go to the mission field. I'll get up and uproot my life and my family. I'll go over there. But I, I, I'm not going over there to Work in the children's ministry at the church? I don't think so, God, but I'm ready to go to the mission field. We are fooling ourselves if we think we're surrendered, and then God gives the specifics of his will to us, and we're like, nope, not doing it. That's what Ananias, I think that's what's happening. Here I am, Lord. Good. Got an assignment for you. You must have something for you to do this. Yeah, here's what I want you to do. I want you to do this and this and this. Uh, whoa. And here's the tone of his objection. Did you sense it? The tone is this. Lord, apparently there's some things you don't know. Because if you knew them, you would surely not send me over to that man's house. You must not know these things. Or if you do know them, you're not factoring them in. Because I know you love me and you wouldn't do that. We'll get to verse 15, 16 in a minute. But would you peek ahead there because it's God's answer back to him. He says, go, for he's a chosen instrument of mine who's going to have this kind of a ministry. And then he says, I'm going to show him how much suffering he's going to do for the sake of my name. So here, here it is again. Lord, I'm surrendered. God gives the specifics. Eh, apparently, you don't know some things, Lord. If you did, you wouldn't do that. And it's as though the Lord says, actually, you're the one who does not know some things. Those reports that you got, there are many of them, and they were accurate. But those are so three days ago. Those reports, three day, those are three-day-old reports. Things have changed. You think, I don't know some things. You're the one who doesn't know some things. Ananias, if you knew what I knew, you would do what I'm saying gladly and immediately. If you knew what I knew. It occurred to me a couple of days ago, and I wish I would have had it in time to put it on your handout, but I didn't. Simple, simple thought, guys. Simple thought. I want to throw it to you. Simple. If we knew what God knows, pretend. If we knew what God knows, we would do what God says. Simple thought. Y'all go home and chew on it. If we knew what God knows... We would do what God says and we'd do it immediately. If, let me rephrase it. If we knew what God knows, we would do what God does. So here's the situation. Here, watch. God has all knowledge. I mean all knowledge. You are not equipped to think of something that God doesn't know. I mean, get ridiculous. 
Go home. Get it crazy in your mind. Do the whole grains of sand and all that little silly stuff and the number of that. You are not even going to get close to touching the knowledge of God. He has it all. And over here we are and we don't have hardly any knowledge. He gives us commands and we don't have the information. All we're left to do is I'm just going to have to trust you because you have all the knowledge. And God says that's what I want. You don't have it all. I have it all. Just do what I say and you'll be doing the right thing. Write this down because I found it interesting as I'm reading this. The word Lord comes up six times in our verses, but two of them early on are coming out of the mouth of Ananias. Twice he calls Jesus Lord, but he's not obeying as if he's the Lord. Verse number 10, here I am, Lord. And then verse number 13, but Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard. And then he gives his rebuttal. Guys, those don't go together. You don't, we don't get to call him absolute master. And I know that's probably not the wording here. There is a form of the word Lord in the New Testament that literally means absolute master as if the person is a slave owner. They could do anything. They own the person. They could do anything they want in the person's life. Well, both of these are true. The, the primary word that's used for Lord throughout and then even the singular few uses of the word Lord in the New Testament, both are true. So guys, I just want to ask you real quick. Answer in your heart. Take a moment right now. When you hear, be it in your private devotions, a podcast, teaching, preaching from here, wherever it is, when you hear a direct command from God and you're like, I know God says to do that, or an inward prompting and you're like, I know that is God telling me to do something, how do you respond? Check your heart. What's your normal response? Do you hear commands of God and is this you? Just cast it aside. Good to know. Heard another sermon. Did another devotion. Check. Clear commands. Do you just cast it aside? Or is this you? I'll evaluate it. Let me evaluate that. Or is this you? Jeff, I'm not so much a, 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 a discarder. I'm not a, a, an evaluator. I'm more of a marinator. If I can marinate it in a lot, then eventually my heart warm, warms up to it. Or do you just, is this your pattern? You just obey. Just obey. That's what we want to strive to do. I think sometimes, uh, if you're like me and we're like Ananias, I think there's another thing that we do. God gives a clear command, and we, and we don't think it's subtle. Isn't it subtle? We don't think of it this way, but we start reasoning with God. We start reasoning with him as if he's missing information. God, in his word, or through the Holy Spirit, tells us to do something very clear. It's clear we're supposed to do it, and here's what we answer back. But, Lord, I'm, I'm not skilled enough to do that. Oh, I didn't know that. My bad. I called you to do something you're not skilled enough to do. My or, Lord, you know I don't have time to do that. Or, Lord, what? You know I can't afford that. Or, Lord, <laughs> I've already done that. It didn't work. Or, Lord, I've already done that. Time for somebody else. Or, what? Lord, that's dangerous. That is risky. That is costly. Do you ever catch yourself reasoning with God and filling him in on information that you think he doesn't know? Write it down. Sometimes, like in verse 13, we're just like Ananias, and we like to inform the all-knowing God of what he already knows. He already knows everything, and here we st I do it. I do the same thing. Lord, here goes Ananias, this man hates you and hates your people. As if God doesn't know this. 
Do y'all know, this is going to be super simple. I hope you don't miss it. Super simple. Do y'all know what that shows and indicates whenever we start? And it's subtle in your mind when we start. We know God has called us to do something. He's impressed upon us. And we start inwardly thinking of reasons and excuses why we can't do it. You know what we're doing. Here's what we're saying, in essence. God, I know what's better for my life than you do. It's, it's that simple. When we start informing God of stuff he already knows, God, I know what's better for my life than you do. I really do, Lord. My private reading this week had me finishing out 2 Corinthians. And I got to chapter 12. And again, I hope I, I don't force my private reading. And I'm telling you, it affects me. So sometimes I might be guilty of like, man, wherever we, he's reading, we can always tell. Because it inevitably makes it into the message somehow. And he just finds a way uh, to whiplash us and make it uh, get into the message. I hope that's not what's happening. Do y'all remember 2 Corinthians 12? Paul, as he's known at that point, same man here. He has this thorn in the flesh. Y'all remember that? He has this thorn in the flesh, and he says in the text that it is harassing him. And in fact, he calls it a messenger of Satan. Don't know what the, what you say, what was that thorn in the flesh? I don't know what it is. Some have said it's something physical. Some have said it was a demonic force. Some have said it was a person, perhaps possessed of a demonic force. Do y'all remember what happened when he prayed about that? Do y'all remember that? He has this thorn in the flesh. It is harassing him. He takes it to the Lord. And that's it saying, Lord, would you please take this out of my life? Life would be better without this. And God refuses his request. How many times did he pray about that? Say it. Three. Think about that. Can I promise y'all, just from my reading in the New Testament, and even really what we're getting ready to see here in a moment, Paul is not praying to God, Lord, please take this out of my life so my life will be comfortable. I promise that's not why he was praying that. I really believe this is what's happening. Think about it. For Paul to pray three times, not once and get denied, not twice and get denied, three times and gets rejected by God, that tells me he's really lobbying and reasoning and trying to convey and manipulate and show God. No, God, I'm not after comfort. My ministry will be better if you will take this messenger of Satan, this thorn in the flesh, away because it's harassment. My ministry will be better. Guaranteed that's what he's doing. And God's like, no, no, no. Now, thankfully, and by the way, listen, God will not always tell you why he's allowing. There, I'm telling you, many prayers have gone up in this crowd We've had things in our life, and we've gone to the Lord and asked him to remove them or fix them, and he doesn't, and he doesn't tell us why. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says why his thorn in the flesh was not removed. He says it's so that he wouldn't be conceited. Paul says, God did not remove the thorn in the flesh so that I would not be conceited. Because Paul had many visions. He's going to have six visions in the book of Acts. He has many revelations. Peter in 2 Peter says, he talks about Paul's books that we call epistles in the New Testament. And Peter's like, he writes about things that are hard to understand. Peter the apostle says Paul's writings are sometimes hard to understand. Paul says, God does not remove my thorn in the flesh because he knows, he knows that if it was gone, I'd get all conceited. He has given me this thing to keep me humble. Let me translate it this way. It's as though God says, Paul... 
I know you with the thorn in the flesh, and I know you without the thorn in the flesh, and I know this is the one you want. I don't like this version of you. I want this version of you, and so you're not losing. I know you think, oh, my ministry would be so much better if this was. I know you. You would be so cocky. You'd be so conceited. So you will keep. I'm after something different. You ever had that in your life? Like, God, please. Why? I had it just this week. Just this week, last two weeks. It's like, Lord, every time something, it's always this way. Why don't you just like once do? And, and God's just like, stop asking me that. Stop wondering that. You just, I have a reason. I'm guaranteeing there's a good reason. It's probably I would be a knucklehead and an idiot if he were to let it go the way I want it to go. Number three. Ananias offers his objections, but Christ just confirms his calling. He just confirms his calling. Verse 15. But the Lord said to him, go. No, you, I know everything. You don't. I want you to go. The Lord said to him, go. Why? This man you're going to is a chosen instrument of mine. This man is going to have an extremely powerful ministry to the Gentiles. Guys, outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, I really believe that this Saul of Tarsus ends up making the most impact in the history of the world. This is such, it's, again, this is a massive event that takes place in Acts chapter number 9. Extremely important. This man, the Lord tells Ananias, is going to have... a powerful, earth-changing, world-changing ministry to the Gentiles. He's going to preach the Lord Jesus Christ before kings, King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26. And he's also going to, every time he goes to a new town, he's always going to minister to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. He's going to minister to all of them. The other apostles, man, they're mainly ministering to the Jews. But this man, he's going to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And what a great work he's going to do. It's almost as though Ananias, here's what the Lord says. My translation, paraphrasing. You're trying to inform me of the past, and I already know the future. I know what he did in the past. I'm telling you what this man's going to do. Ananias, if you knew what I know, you would go be a blessing. You have an opportunity, Ananias, to be a blessing at a very timely moment in this man's life. Don't blow it because you want to play it safe. And the rest of the book of Acts unfolds how powerful this threefold ministry of Christ is in verse 15. Now, would you look down at verse 16 for a moment? Look at verse 16. Not only is he going to carry my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, and this threefold dynamic, really two, and the kings would be a sub point under the Gentile ministry. But look at verse 16. It's kind of unique. Jesus tells Ananias, For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. I will show him. And I take that at full face value. I'm going to show him how much he must suffer. So apparently the Lord Jesus and Saul had a conversation. And he let Saul know the suffering that's going to come his way. And it's very unique. So I want to say, I'm going to chase a quick rabbit just for a moment if I could. I'm going to show him what he must suffer. And the Lord in a, in a generic way has done that with all of his people. And I'll give that to you in a moment. But can we first talk about what our enemy does? I want you to listen carefully. Satan never shows you the suffering. Satan always shows us, and we fall for it. He shows us the pleasure, the temporary pleasure of sin. 
But he never shows us the pain. If he showed us the pain of sin, we wouldn't do it. So he lures it out there. And it is in so many ways. You could take about any old sin and just say, wow, why do I do that? Why am I drawn to do that? Because something about it looks good. There are easy examples. You know, we've got some young people. We've got some middle schoolers and high schoolers and college age and even adults. I, I'm not, I don't want to be that guy, right? I don't want to be that guy. I don't, he's that guy. Typical preacher. I want to tell you something. Satan is going to throw, and it's in your culture, and I, you're being bombarded with it a lot more than I ever will. But he's going to dangle with you, in front of you, drugs and alcohol. And he's going to show you the good times. Look how much fun those people are having. You will be accepted by the cool group, the group you want to be accepted by. And he's going to show that to you. He's going to show you, look at their loss of inhibition. Look how free they are. Man, you are. The feeling that is going to give your body, you ought to, or here it is, you need an escape. Man, life is so bad. You want, a, you want an escape? And he's going to show you the temporary escape. But what he is not going to show you is how after you experience that, you're going to go back to it again. And you're going to need it again and again. And before long, literally, it is, that will become like a vine. And it is just going to start encapsulating you. In, he doesn't show you the slavery. I'm going to use you. You can say, no, 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 I'm different. I'm different. It won't do that to me. He doesn't show you the addiction. He doesn't show you, how, again, how you go back to it again and again, and all of a sudden, it is more important than other things, and your performance in life starts just suffering and going down and down. And before long, people are noticing, and you get written up at work, and you get written up again, and then you get reprimanded, calling the office, and all of a sudden, your file that was squeaky clean, all of a sudden, it's like, the unthinkable has happened. They have had to let you go from your job because... This is now taking over your life. It is, it's your new identity. He doesn't show you that. And what he doesn't show you is when, oh, my reputation gets me another job, but it's not long before you can't keep that one or the next one, and you have total financial ruin, and you end up losing your family, and you end up going and stealing from strangers, and you even steal from your family. And some of you are like, that guy is a nut, man. He's crazy. And some of you are in here this morning going, that is exactly what happens. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. He doesn't tell you the pain. He doesn't tell you the slavery. Don't start. He shows you the, the passion and the lust and the excitement of the forbidden affair. Wouldn't that be fun? Look, that could happen for you. What he doesn't show you is the heartbreak of your spouse. He doesn't show you your kids sobbing. He doesn't show your home wrecked. He doesn't show you the courtroom controversy and the artificial visitation rights and the financial ruin and the loss of everything you had. But boy, wasn't that great. He's a liar. Would you write this down? Satan shows the temporary pleasures of sin. He never shows its pain. But God, in verse 16, we get a picture of it. God, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, tells all Christians, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. God tells Christians right out of the gate, guess what? You live a godly life, oh, then it'll be easy street for me. Nope, you are going to suffer persecution. See, God tells the truth. You say, well, then why would I ever? Because it's the best life. Satan is not showing you the pain. It is so much pain. 
So all true Christians are going to suffer persecution for the cause of Christ if they desire to live a godly life. You're going to suffer persecution for the name of Christ. But here, what I want to take a moment and tell us is this man, Saul of Tarsus, uh, yeah, he's a whole other level of suffering. I mean, extreme suffering. And God, the Lord Jesus, is somewhere at some point gives him behind the scenes, Saul, here's what's going to happen. And he pulls the curtain back, and Saul gets to see the various things. You're like, what all happens to him? Go if you would, 2 Corinthians. Again, forgive me, it was in my devotions this week, right? So it's like, got to come out. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Flip over there right quick. Let's go there quickly. 2 Corinthians, I want you to see this. This is not 1 Corinthians, this is 2nd. Really, it's 4th Corinthians. I'll explain that another day. We only have two that are inspired. There were four letters from Paul to this group of people. On this one, he's actually having to defend his ministry. It's really pitiful what's going on. He even says in this book, y'all have forced me to do this. So he's writing this letter and he's having to, in essence, brag about himself. And he hates to do it. It's, it's this. Y'all are following false teachers, false supposedly super apostles. They've deceived you and you're going away from me. And if that's all it was, if it was just me, then I would let it slide. Not a big deal. But they're wrong. And they're not telling you the truth. And I am the man of God. And I have told you the truth. And so you need to come back to where I am. And so he's going to do what he really hates to do. He's going to have to brag on himself. Why you should listen to me and not them. Look at verse 23. Look at verse 23. 2 Corinthians 11. Verse 23. Here's the context. I will show him all the things that he must suffer for the sake of my name. Look at verse 23. Paul says, are they servants of Christ? Hey, Corinthians, are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. That is so not like Paul. If you know his writings, this is not what he does. Corinthians, I know, I know you don't think I'm the best speaker. I know, I know they're fancier speakers. Man, they're so charismatic and they're captivating. They don't have the knowledge that I have. They are wrong and you're following them. Verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, you see what he's doing? I have far greater labors than they do. Far more imprisonments. Them, you're following them, they've not been imprisoned for the cause of Christ. With countless beatings. I think what he means here, because the context of what's coming is sometimes, how many times do people just hit him physically because he's a follower of Christ? Just countless beatings. Them? No. Often near death. I've been often like near... Uh, today, you think they're going to kill him this time? Paul says five times. This is what the Lord has shown him in advance before he really launches out into his Christian life. Here's what's coming. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Five times beaten with 39 lashes by the Jews. Three times I was beaten with rods. That's Gentiles with rods. Jews with a, a whip. Gentiles Five by them, three by them. Once I was stoned like Stephen, like literally they left a pile him under a pile of rocks. They think he's dead at the city of Lystra. He miraculously stayed. Some have even said he was resurrected. I don't go that far. Look in the middle of verse 25. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. I'm going to tell you. I say this every time I read that. If I get in one shipwreck. You are not getting me back on another ship. That's it. One shipwreck. That's it. 
Paul's like, dude, why do you keep going? Got to take the gospel. How safe was the boating? Is this not very good? Three times a night and a day, I was adrift at sea. I want to ask you guys, if this was your list, and you had to choose between being beaten with rods three times, being beaten by the Jews five times, or three shipwrecks, which one would you take? You're like, those are like really stinky choices. They are. I wouldn't want any of Me personally, I think I would choose the beating over the... Some of y'all are like, oh, I love the ocean. I love the ocean too. But the thought of me out in the Mediterranean Sea that's over a thousand foot deep in some places, just hanging apparently on some boards and just hoping somebody eventually, nighttime and the next day, and apparently somebody came by. No, no. That would be more torture to me. You may be like, oh, man, I'll do that all day. Don't give me the beating. Okay, well, you're weird. All right. <laughs> Look at verse 26. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers. Guys, I don't think we should. I don't think we need to. We've got to go. We've got to get across this. Danger from robbers, apparently in bad sections. Hey, those guys over there look like, yep, we're in danger. Danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship, let this sink in, through many a sleepless night. Could, who among us could say, honestly, for the cause of Christ, I've had many a sleepless night. You, you know what I mean, where just, yeah, just missed that night, just didn't get sleep that night. For the cause of Christ. In hunger and thirst, don't have food. Often without food. Some of you are saying this is the idea of fasting. In cold, in exposure. It's cold. He doesn't have enough. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure of my anxiety for all the churches. I'm at one church. I feel the anxiety of one church. This guy, I'm like, I'll just tell you right now. I would not want that life. But he gets told at the out front, Ananias, you go over there. You're going to do this. He's special. I'm going to show him at the outset what he's going to go through. wonder what Paul thought about that. Well, go if you would. One more spot. Romans chapter 8. Flip over to Romans 8. It's important. Romans 8, verse 18. Romans 8, 18. For I consider... The idea of consider there, we, the old King James used the word reckon, like you just have to consider it to be that way. Paul says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Saul, here's what, all the stuff you're going to go through. I'm telling you guys, I really believe this. I believe Paul's attitude was, he is so zealous. Bring it on. Lord, I, I welcome the opportunity to show you my loyalty and my love. If that furthers your cause, then bring on all. You're going to be beaten five times by them and three times by them. You're going to be stoned by them. You're going to have a shipwreck three times. And by the way, there's going to be a fourth one because Acts chapter 27 is going to be a, a different one. Four shipwrecks. His attitude, I really believe, is bring it, Lord. Whatever makes you happy. Would you write this down? Knowing in advance the specifics of 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three to 28, Paul still says that our sufferings for Christ on earth are not worth comparing to the glory that is to come. What a thought. It is not worth comparing with the glory that is to come. While you're writing that, I, I, I'm going to quickly share this because uh, it struck me. 
probably months ago, maybe a year ago, as I was reading Romans 8, a new way that I want to look at this, verse 18. Like, this is not worth comparing. I'll give you a moment. I know some of you write quickly. What if we had denominations of American money? What if we had units? American monetary units. You ready? Watch. Over here we have 29 American monetary units. And over here we have one American monetary unit. 29 units of money, one unit of money. Which one do you want? It's a trick question. What do you think makes it a trick question? Do you want the 29 units of money or do you want the one unit of money? What is the trick question? What are the units? Over here you got 29 pennies. And over here you have one $100 bill. 29! Yeah, 29. This, one of these, is equal to 10,000 of those. A $100 bill is equal to 10,000 pennies. 29 pennies! That's just one thing over there. And that is a weak illustration. You know what Paul is saying? Look at all the suffering this man had to endure. That is that's not a comparison. That's not a real comparison. Because these aren't equal things. The glory that is to come is so much greater than any suffering here. Write this down. Back in Matthew 5, Jesus taught us and what the Bible indicates. Seriously, guys, I'm not making this up. The more suffering that a person endures for the cause of Christ, the greater their reward. I'm un- Standing here today, logically thinking, Jeff Bartlett is not asking God, God, would you give me more suffering? But I have a hunch that if we were to get to heaven and know all that God knows and know what Paul knew by revelation, he got to go see the third heaven. He really. So, Jeff, are you implying that we might would actually get to heaven and like wish we had more suffering for Christ? I am hinting that. More suffering for Christ equals greater reward. What a thought. So Paul's not faced. Last thought. Acts chapter 9, verses 17 to 19. Would you notice number 4? Christ commanded Ananias. Ananias objected to Christ and debated with him. Jesus doubles down and just reconfirms his commands. And now we find ultimately Ananias does obey. And he goes and he ministers to Saul. As you're writing that, verse 17, Ananias departed into the house and laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which, you've, by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So he goes and he ministers to him. Keep the thought going. To me, this illustrates two pretty important things. Well, the first one is just maybe information, just information. His eventual obedience illustrates to us two key things. Number one, it shows the realistic and reliable nature of visions. So every now and then we come, there's a difference between dreams and there's encounters. There's an encounter with the Lord and then there are these visions. Like what, what does it actually mean when the Bible talks about a vision? I can't go into it now, but I'm going to throw it out there. In Acts chapter 10, two men are going to have visions. One of them is named Peter. And in Acts chapter 12, Peter is going to have a real event happen in his life. And he's going to think he's having a vision. Put that together. 
Acts 10, Peter has a vision. Acts 12, something's really happening in real life. He thinks that is another vision. That tells us what visions are like. So Acts 10, coupled with chapter 12, verse 9, shows that visions are much like real life. Very much like real life. So this shows us the reliable, realistic nature. I mean, this man's going to take action on a vision that's very dangerous. Second thing it shows us is the sincerity of Ananias' trust in Christ. This man really trusted Christ. Sincerely. So I want to put quick inventory. What does he have? Ananias has two things. Actually, he has one thing and he's lacking another. On one side, here's what Ananias has. He has many reliable, truthful accounts about Saul of Tarsus, that this man hates Jesus, he hates Christians. This is what he has. Many reliable accounts, and that he's come up to Damascus with the intention of arresting more Christians and murdering them, so he has reliable, many accounts. Over here, what he doesn't have is any version of a story that there's been a conversion of Saul. The only, the only inkling, the only knowledge of the conversion of Saul is this vision. All he has is this vision to tell him. You understand? There are no rumors. Did y'all hear about Saul of Tarsus? What? Dude got saved. What? What do you mean saved? He believes in Jesus. Rumors are not out there. You know Why? Because nobody's gone over to confirm this. There are no rumors. Somebody's got to be the first person to go check it out. Ananias, that's going to be you. What about all these reports? Yeah, they're old reports. So what do I have to guarantee? You have this vision. You have my word. You do, you're familiar with me, right? You recognize when it's... And that's all it took. This man really trusts Christ so much so that he just uproots and goes... Is it true that the wolf has changed to a sheep? Go see. He had the audacity to believe that Jesus really could save anyone. Verse 17. I'll just admit to you, it's a confusing verse. It's really, in essence, a standalone passage. This is not the same as chapter, 20, uh, chapter 8. when Y'all remember that? When the Samaritans did not have the Holy Spirit and... The Lord sent Peter and John. They laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. They received the Holy Spirit. This is a whole different thing here. So Ananias departed, entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you've come, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And you're like, okay, what's going on there? The best I can tell is the Bible seems to be making a distinction between being indwelt by the Spirit and being filled with the Spirit I wouldn't die for this. I'm going to propose to you that Saul at this point is already indwelled with the Holy Spirit. He is not yet filled with the Holy Spirit. And so the laying on of the hands of Ananias ends up being a format or something that God uses to bring about the filling of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Apostle Paul. Would you write this down? Being filled with the Spirit in verse number 17 ends up serving Paul in a way in which he gets empowered by the Holy Ghost to carry out the ministry of verse 15. This ministry to the Gentiles, ministry to the Jews, the speaking in front of kings. And it's being thrust and started off and really ignited by this initial filling of the Holy Spirit. That happens here via the hands. God is doing it. 
via the hands of Ananias. But quickly, I want to note this. The New Testament makes a strong implication. In fact, it is Paul who teaches this in Galatians chapter 1. Also the whole tone of the book of 2 Corinthians. It is very important in the New Testament that verse 17, this whole hands of Ananias and this being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's very important that that was not done, not done by another one of the apostles. Why is that important? Because Paul must be seen as equal to the other apostles. He must not be seen as someone who's drawing his power from them, deriving his power from the other apostles. No, Paul does not get his power from the other apostles. They did not lay their hands on him so that he gets filled by the Holy, filled with the Holy Spirit by the laying on of hands of Peter or John or one of the others. No, it's a man that's not even mentioned again in the New Testament, except in relation to this story. So to be clear, Paul was approached by Christ personally, directly. Paul was called by Christ directly. Paul is taught by Christ directly, not through the other apostles. Paul is strengthened by Christ directly. He doesn't get his knowledge. The other apostles don't teach him and train him. They don't give him the Holy Spirit. They don't give him the filling of the Holy Spirit. And again, to be crystal clear, I want to say this. If you need to go back and you're like, man, what does this even mean? We preached along these lines like three or four weeks ago, back in chapter 8. You need to look it up. But here's what I know for certain. I don't know all that God is doing here in verse number 17, why he did it this way, laying on the hands of Ananias. I don't understand that. Here's how much I know for sure. Romans 8, verse 9. Anyone who does not have the Holy Spirit is not one of his. It's not one of God's. That's Romans 8, 9. And 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7 and verse 13. Make it very clear. All of us, all true Christians, have received the manifestation of the Holy Spirit for the profit of all Christians. We've all been baptized into one spirit, and we've been made to drink of one spirit. We've all been given the Holy Spirit. Here's what I know. Whatever is happening here in the 30s, A.D. 30s, by the time Romans and 1 Corinthians are written in the middle to later 50s, we know this. All true Christians receive the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation. There's not a time... Where you get saved and later on down the road, you get the Holy Spirit. There is no gift of giving the Holy Spirit among the spiritual gifts. Last thing, let's look at verse 18, 19. I'm just going to touch it. Look at it. And immediately something like, I used to read that first part of verse 18. And I used to think it's symbolic. Oh, I used to think it was real simple. He laid his hands on him. He gave these words. And symbolically, it was like, I've changed my mind this week. I wouldn't die for it, but I think apparently this seeing Jesus not only blinded Saul of Tarsus, apparently it left some hardened film-like substance that was hard and scaly over his eyes. We know that his eyes were open on the road to Damascus, but he can't see anything. I don't know this, but I just wonder if anybody's like, oh, man, oh, man, oh, what is that? And here comes Ananias, lays his hands on him, and whatever it is just falls away, and now he can see again. What does he do? He gets up and gets baptized. Why get baptized? Because he's obedient to the Lord. Why get baptized? To announce to everyone, I am actually now linking myself in my allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm linking myself to his followers. And this is going to blow everybody's mind. And he does this, no doubt, publicly. MacArthur writes the following. He says, when he got baptized, he openly united with the very people he had hated and persecuted. 
The last thought this morning is the end of verse 20. And for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. Would you write this last note? MacArthur offers to us one sure mark of a transformed life is the desire to be with fellow Christians. The Bible says after Saul receives the filling of the Holy Spirit, he receives his sight, he gets some food, he's been baptized, and some days he was with, so the next time we come back, we're going to have to start looking at these days that he spends with the disciples at Damascus, because for some days, apparently a good amount of days, split up in time, but for a good amount of days, man, where is he? It's like, he doesn't get saved and like, hey, thanks, I'm heading back to my old life. No, I came to kill you guys, but man, let's hang out together. I want to be with you. Could we have the verse on the screen? Look at 1 John. Look at 1 John. Chapter 3. You see this? Look at it. We know that we have passed out of death into life. I like John. I, I, I used John yesterday in a, a memorial service, this 1 John. I even thought, boy, it's going to be years from now. But I, I, I like 1 John. He is so... He is so. We know that we have passed... Out of death. So watch. Here's death. We're in death. We're separated from God. We know we've passed out of death and we're in life. We know that. Saved people know they've passed from death to life. How do you know that? Because we love the brothers. Used to be over here. Well, nothing to do with those folks. Then I got saved. The Lord moved me from separation and death away from him, all of a sudden I'm in life and united with him and all of a sudden there's all these other people that are there too and I like being with them. We know, one of the ways you know you've passed from death to life is when you love the brothers. Whoever does not love, there's a reason. I, I don't really like Christians. There's a reason. It's because you abide in death. MacArthur words it this way. A professing, professing Christian who prefers the company of the world is probably still one of them. How does your life stack up with this? Can you honestly say, I have a strong desire to be with God's people? If this is your faith family, hey, but I know I'm preaching to the choir today, right? Because you're here. Does your attendance record and your faithfulness, if this is your faith family, does it illustrate that you've passed from death to life and the reason you should know that you're Christians? Because I just love being with Christians. If you're here this morning like, ah, oh, I just don't like being with Christians. It's such a struggle. I'm only doing this because somebody made me and I don't want nothing to do with it. That's a problem. You ought to go home and think about the end of that verse. Heads bowed, eyes closed, just for a moment. I'm going to invite you to put yourself to the 1 John 3.14 test. Loving Christians does not save us. Loving Christians does not save us. But loving other Christians, boy, that's a pretty good sign. You are probably one of them. And just before I pray... Real simple, wrap up this morning. Would everybody in here just take a moment and evaluate your heart? 
Has there been a moment in your life, maybe recently or previously, where you thought, and I thought I was surrendered to the Lord, but when he started giving me the specifics of his will and it was real clear what he was calling me to, I rejected it and I started debating with him. Would you check your heart right quick? Is there any area of your life where you've caught yourself recently trying to inform the all-knowing God who knows everything and you're like trying to tell him reasons why you can't obey him? There's no doubt about Ananias, man. He, he did object, but when Christ confirmed his call in his life, this man did a very risky thing and he left no doubt he really, truly believes and trusts the words of Christ. He trusts them so much. I mean, he went right. If Saul did not get saved, he literally was offering his life to the great persecutor of the church. But he trusted the words of Christ. Do your, does your life just illustrate trust for Christ? That's how we glorify him. Daring to obey him, we glorify Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together. Lord, I pray that our lives would reflect true faith in you, your words, trust. Father, I pray that we'd be very close to you and that every one of us would have a genuine, authentic relationship with you where we hear you regularly in your word, personally. And then, Lord, help us to discern what you sound like in your prompting of your Holy Spirit so that that's not some mystical-sounding thing but something that we experience and that we respond immediately, joyously, even when we're in the dark and don't have all the information, we trust that you do have the information and you are wise and you do love us and you have a great plan that is different than ours, but it would be ours if we knew all that you know. Lord, teach us to trust you and obey. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Have a great week. Wednesday night, those of you that need to finish chapter four of your seminar preparation, Wednesday night.